You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we wear pink. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Tears looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're gonna need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. Hello and finally welcome back to another episode of Films and Friends. My name's Josh. I am joined as ever by Tobias. Hi, I I am alive. I am here. <laughs> we are back. And this week we are joined by our first returning guest of the second series. We are joined by my, as he called it before, woommate. We're joined by Jake. Right. So Jake, how are you holding up in the whole... Well, now lockdown may nearly be over, but how are you holding up in the um sort of post... Almost, hopefully, post coronavirus environment. Not bad, you know. I finished university now, so I've now got a three month stint at home waiting for what I'm doing next to start. So I'm sure I'll have lots of time to watch films if I want to stay on brand. I have been seeing on Letterboxd, sometimes it pops up that um, both of you will review a film or just give it a couple stars. But uh, yeah, uh, you guys have been doing some uh, woommate film nights for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think I worked out this since um I think what was it I think I think ev- I got back to Cornwall on the um what was it the 22nd of March and between then and now I only haven't watched a film on two nights every oh, other wow. day I've watched a film and sometimes I watch two Well that's impressive because Becca and I were doing we basically <laughs> coronavirus film club where we watched the film every night one night she picked it I picked the other night and we would even set out a list and we'd try and follow it. And we did that for about 15, 16 days, which was pretty impressive. And then we slowed down because we were focused on our dissertations and whatnot. Hmm. Um, I just checked. I've watched 81 films since I came home. Bloody hell. No, I've seen... Uh, I've got a list here. I mean, I've seen 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. <laughs> okay, 31 films. Not bad. That's a pretty solid effort, especially considering it's only been like three months, less than three months. Yeah, I and I think the biggest gap I had between watching films um, was when we stopped doing kind of like the, the film club. And I suggested that, I, I, I didn't suggest, sorry, I, I watched Overlord just because I wanted to. Just going to say, to be fair though, with me and Josh watching films together, I think there was a certain point where we did watch a load of bad films in a row. That's the sort of danger of trying to watch a film every night you do sort of if you end up on a bad streak, you sort of start to become demoralised. Oh, yeah, and, and like mentally as well, you, you, you start blending stories together where you kind of forget what you watched. Yeah, to be fair, the other day we were, t- I can't, I can't, we were watching something and we saw like a popular trope and we were trying to work out which film we'd seen before that was in it and then we had to go back <laughs> through the letterbox thing and like go through the like synopsis of all the films to try and work out where this very specific thing had happened and it took far, far too long and it was a complete waste of time. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's rough. <laughs> Keeping your sanity intact while watching a lot of films in a row isn't isn't the easiest thing to do. I think you alluded it slightly earlier there when we talked about like we're finally back and sort of revealing that we are indeed still alive. And sort of we should probably make maybe a tiny bit of transparency about how we managed to create quite a good song and dance about starting season two and then disappear for over a month. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been a combination of the. I mean, it's taxing being in lockdown and having to deal with the cabin fever that comes along with sitting at home all day. But also our degrees uh, mm. became quite taxing for a couple of weeks. I 
I ended up writing about 20,000 words in just over two weeks for essays and my dissertation and, and exams. That is pretty impressive. That is a lot of words. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we did record this episode, actually, with, with Jake a couple of weeks ago, and we decided to not release it and redo it because we, we'd rather, you know, we, we'd rather have a proper street going releasing proper episodes yes because it was in a no uncertain terms just it was just it just i i don't think it was horrifically bad i think it was just it just wasn't up to our usual standards i think especially from me because i was i was still doing it in a place where i was very stressed with my um sort of trying to finish my project and i think i just sort of thought i oh, will get one done it'll be fine but when you sort of listen back to it and you think it's better to wait longer and release something you're actually proud of rather than just sort of putting stuff out into the ether just because you feel like you're sort of being constrained by sort of self-imposed oh we have to release something every tuesday absolutely and in the time that we've been waiting the mood i think of what films you want to watch has changed i think at the beginning a lot of people were watching pandemic movies i mean what what, what was the film contagion that went it went viral <laughs> pardon the pun <laughs> That that film was popular for the first few weeks of lockdown, and then people wanted uplifting stuff. Mm. And now we we're dealing with a political situation, which I we I think it's is definitely worth mentioning and and, and um, bringing up. And it's the whole Black Lives Matter coming into the spotlight. And in this time, I think we have two recommendations to make. One, uh, educate yourself, donate, do what you have to do there's a ton of resources out there um to contribute to this movement you can do you don't have to be american do it you can do it from the uk you can do it from anywhere else in the world and the other recommendation we have is i think a film each we can recommend to uh further this education about the well the the discourse surrounding uh blackness on film yeah, definitely. I think um, as much as there are sort of there, are, there are really good sort of books available for free now that you can sort of look at, and obviously there's plenty of stuff online. But I think for a lot of people watching, sometimes putting it into sort of a fictional setting, it, 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 even though it is obviously a fictional setting, watching something on screen can it can definitely be a part of an education as well, not just documentaries. I think there are many. There's lots of uh, talk online now about sort of being careful in a way which kind of films you recommend and there's a lot of stuff about um a lot of people have done lists of uh, these kind of films and have sort of received some i think quite warranted criticism for focusing on sort of um uh, sort of so white savior movies so stuff like green book or like hidden figures and especially hidden figures when you consider that the whole purpose of that film is sort of uh, sort of these black women who are part of the sort of the hidden figures of trying to uh, launch the Apollo 11 mission and in the film there's a there's a white character played by Kevin Costner who um sort of he's basically the sort of anti-racist of the piece who like takes down the sign that says sort of uh, colored toilets only and sort of allows one of the women into the control room to see it to see the launch properly and it's obviously that is you would argue that that is yeah that sort of is a sort of matter of historical record until you find out that character is not real at all he has been completely designed for that film and none of that stuff ever happened and i think sort of trying to i think it is in many ways disingenuous to recommend that as a film of oh we'll watch this because it's because it, it isn't a matter of historical record it is designed ostensibly to make white people feel better 
about the situation because oh there's at least one white character there that's making life better and the same for the help i think is the one that really receives quite a lot of warranted criticism for that yeah i i enjoy the help when i watched it um but i to be fair i watched it when i was a teenager and i wasn't really fully aware of how certain forms of discourse can be harmful to certain causes so mm. i enjoyed it but yeah looking back on it and then learning about it it really showed to be not quite the best film to watch if you're thinking about learning um about black experiences in history definitely. however a film i can definitely recommend and is one i recommended on twitter the other day is blind spotting it's written directed and starred in by David Diggs and Raphael Casal. David Diggs is a poet, a stage actor. He was in the original run of Hamilton. And Raphael Casal is a good friend of David's, and he's also an actor and poet and rapper. They, they, they both rap as well. And Blindspotting is a story about gentrification, about police brutality, about racial profiling, about the fear and pain uh, black people and black men who are ex-convicts can feel in America. It's a it's a powerful film, and it's also quite funny. That there's there's a lot of really clever humor that punctuates some really impactful, heartbreaking scenes. So, Blind Spotting from 2018. That's my recommendation. What do you guys recommend? Um, I think it's not necessarily as related to the current situation as uh, the film you mentioned. There's, I don't think there's any. Uh, there's a bit of police brutality in it, but it is. Sorry to bother you, which is sort of more anti-capitalist, but I think it does touch on the sort of racial dynamics at play with modern capitalism and the way that it exploits people. And in America, when that does happen, it tends to be exploitative of. Uh, people who are in lower socioeconomic backgrounds, obviously including black people. So I think it's kind of sort of pertinent thing to watch, especially when you consider the sort of situation we're living in now with the rise of massive companies like, Joe, I won't name any, but you, you can probably guess who I'm alluding to. Yeah, Sorry to Bother You is, is, is fantastic. And it's one of those films which you shouldn't look up what it's about <laughs> more than that the, before you watch it, because it, it's truly a um, mind-bending trip. I think what my recommendation would be, and in such the same vein as Jake's, mine isn't quite as sort of prescient to the current situation, because I think blind spotting. I don't think there is a film that is is that sort of relevant now as blind spotting. I think it absolutely nails it, especially given it's some more. Because obviously, you could talk about sort of films, uh, a lot of films from like back in the sort of the early nineties. So things like uh, Menace to Society, or you have things like um, uh, uh, Do the Right Thing. And those are obviously the issues are very pertinent today, but they don't put it in exact in, in the sort of they they even to the extent of like putting it into like the sort of the social media age as it were. So it is extremely relevant, but it's even more relevant when you see it. It's potentially be happening right now because obviously there's the less sort of obvious uh, sort of time difference or whatever. So I think the film I recommend is sort of related to Menace to Society. So it's another it's another Hughes Brothers film. It's uh, Dead Presidents from 1995. And it's basically, um, I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, sort of plot, you know, uh, The Deer Hunter? Yes, I, I remember watching it a couple of years ago and it, it that talks about the PTSD 
Vietnam veterans felt, right? Yeah, so basically what it is, is it's very similarly structured in that you sort of meet a sort of collection of uh, black characters from uh, New York City, and then you sort of follow their lives, the beginning of their lives, and then you have sort of an intermission in the middle where you go to Vietnam, and I think, to be fair, for my money, I think it is probably one of the most brutal depictions of Vietnam on film. I think it's severely underrated sort of how and I, obviously the Vietnam War has been sort of done pretty much to death in film at this point. But even having seen a lot of Vietnam War films, the sort of level of intensity and violence, and it's, only, it's probably only 20 minutes, half an hour of the film, it is pretty brutal, to be honest. And then it sort of follows them as they come back. And it's very much about how sort of how even though the people coming back from Vietnam, a lot of them were treated like heroes for sort of black people they weren't really they were just sort of left to their own devices and sort of oh you've sort of finished your time and then continue with the rest of your life like nothing ever happened to you and i think it's especially going to be prescient to sort of it's a good film to watch sort of in the next few days because it i from what i understand uh spike lee's new film which came out on netflix on the 12th yeah to five bloods i think that's very similar sort of talking about um sort of black experiences in vietnam which is something that is weirdly overlooked in quite a lot of films actually when you really think about it yeah, I was about to bring that film up. Yeah, the, the the there is a whole conversation to be had about the contributions, and this isn't just contributions intellectually. I mean, this is literal blood, sweat, and tears of um, black men in the military that seemed to fly under the radar. You see Michael Bay making 13 hours talking about Benghazi, or you see Clint Eastwood making films about American Sniper, and it's it's this one sniper who... If you look into the real world history, he was actually very is was sorry a very problematic person, and yeah, the the the, the black war experience is quite relegated to the sidelines. There's books, of course, there maybe there's a couple documentaries, but big, I'd say blockbuster films that talk about this is is quite limited. So yeah, Dead Presidents and The Five Bloods they are prominent films. Yeah, definitely. And I think sort of to move back on to sort of our sort of regularly scheduled programming, take it back to Jake. Um, So if you want to reintroduce yourself for anyone who hasn't listened to the first podcast, which I would highly recommend you go back and listen to that one first, because there might be some kind of references to that that may not make as much sense. Uh, Yeah, I'm Jake. I'm Josh's womb mate or twin brother, some people may say. (laughs) And um, I, well, technically now I'm a former physics student at the University of Birmingham, but I have actually graduated. So now I am, I'm really just waiting to go and um, start a master's course in September. What, what are you studying your master's in? Uh, sports journalism, so, you know, a very physically uh, thing to go and do. What's your favourite um, sports film? I've really sprung you on I do, do apologise, good... I really have sprung this on you there. Ah, uh, good question. Um... <laughs> I'll go for mine first, will... if that helps. I think my favourite one is probably The Damned United, because it's not really about sports at all. It's more about sort of the person, but it's basically a story of a football manager who's basically basically famously known as the uh, most famous, the, the best manager England never had, because even though he was a really high profile manager in sort of the uh, first division, he was never uh, given the job as the manager of England, even though everyone said he should be. And it's um, oh, it's Martin Sheen, isn't it? Is it Martin Sheen? I feel like I've messed yeah. it up. It's Martin Sheen, isn't it? Yeah. 
yeah, it's Martin Sheen plays him, and it is just it's a really as with anything Martin Sheen does, really, it's just a really really good character study. Oh, he's brilliant. It's quite an interesting person, and it's also not that long. Right, it's only about ninety minutes long, which is like a football match. So if you don't want to watch football, watch the Damn United instead. <laughs> There's not even that much football in it. I'll definitely have to check that out. I have because I'm I not found a footy film. fan. Uh, I Tonya. That's a good. Mm. Probably my favourite sports film. I mean, I've had. I was looking up sports film. I've only found it by looking it up online. I saw that um, Raging Bull was listed on there, and obviously I'm quite a big Scorsese fan, so I probably will check that out at some point. That may overtake it because I've seen Rocky, but didn't think it was incredible. So perhaps that'll be a better boxing-related film. Yeah. My favourite, and it's tied again to my favourite sport, is um, Invictus. I remember watching the film in cinemas and loved it as a rugby fan and then as someone who's starting to get interested in politics. And then I picked up the book and the book is truly, truly fantastic. It's, it's a lot harder hitting than the film. And... The author of it, who um, I should have the name up, but um, I don't. The author, he is very well informed on politics. He he is a very, uh, very well read man. So, Invictus is is one of my favorite films. Um, and again, it does actually kind of tie in. It, it it's about apartheid in in South Africa. So, kind of tied into the political issues we're talking about today. So to take it slightly away from your um, degree, and I won't ask you what your favourite um, physics film is, because I can't think of any apart from Primer, which I don't think you've even seen. Have you seen that? We, we literally watched it together. I oh, did we actually? Well, I forgot about that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I, think... would, I, I would just say um, my answer would not be Interstellar, so I'm, I'm not a big fan of that film. <laughs> so um, so on your list of sort of the, the sort of to touch back on some of the things we talked about last time, sort of on the list you sent us of sort of your favourite films, we got managed to talk about quite a lot of them. But one of the ones we didn't talk about, which I know you're a really big fan of, is uh, Portrait of Lady on Fire. Yeah, so me and you actually watched that uh, about, probably a month ago, actually. And you didn't think it was... I don't know. I think that it's definitely a film that you've got to pay attention to because there's quite a lot of, like, subtlety, it's not even subtlety, but, like, there's a running thread through the film based on a Greek myth, and if you sort of miss that bit, I think you do sort of lose a lot of the sort of emotional impact of the ending. So I think the ending is sort of like a very, uh, I don't know what right word, it's sort of a very sort of fitting end to the film, because if you uh, sort of read it, you know what's going to happen, but you sort of, sort of, don't want it to if that makes sense what this basically is it's a very long-winded way of trying to basically i intimate culpability here of when i watched that film when we watched it together i think i was doing something on my phone and basically missed the bit where they introduced the whole greek myth thing so at the end i basically had absolutely no idea what was happening and basically yeah i made an idiot myself basically it i, I accept full responsibility for that and i le- that i learned from that lesson to pay more attention to the entirety of films and not try and mentally edit bits out so i can quickly have a look <laughs> at stuff on the internet but yeah it is an incredible film it's probably well it's in my top i'm on letterboxd it is in my top four and it's probably my third favorite film of all time and it is just incredible like the i actually before the whole coronavirus thing when I left Birmingham, the following week I was going to go to the cinema to rewatch it because it was showing at the um like cinema near my house. Also, didn't get a chance in the end, so I would love to see it on the big screen. 
I was thinking actually about that the other day about how much I miss the cinema. Have you have you had any? I know you're not you haven't you don't really frequent the cinema as much as me and Toby Jake. But have you have you had that at all, Toby? Um, what? Sorry. Just sort of like watching something and thinking, God, I really wish I was in a cinema right now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there there are certain films. I I even get it when I'm at the cinema and I'm like, God, I'm glad I'm at the cinema. Yeah. And that's how I felt with uh, Dunkirk and Blade Runner 2049 and just, I don't know, a couple of other films that I watched, like The Death of Dick Long, which there was something special about being at a festival in a country where the film hadn't been released and there were only about eight people in the room. So I knew at that moment that I was in a room having a shared experience with people who we were probably the only people in the country to watch this film. Hmm. Yeah, they, I, I do get that. I do get that experience. Um, fortunately, my housemates and I a couple months ago pitched in to buy a big TV. I think it's like 50-something inches, a 55-inch TV. And um, when I watch a film in, at home, I close the curtains and I sit down relatively close to the TV, so it's actually quite comparable to the cinema. <laughs> Do you get someone to kick the back of your chair? <laughs> Just to wind you up? Oh, I, I could try that. I might actually ask my housemates when they come back. Uh, <laughs> I'll be like, yeah, can you just walk in and shine a torch on the floor near me and uh, throw popcorn? Just, just just, chuck it and maybe use your phone in the corner so I can see the light reflecting. And then whenever you um, watch anything on like a Saturday afternoon, you have to have a load of like, teenagers at the back just talking for a bit, and then a member of staff turns up with a phone and then has to kick them out, which happened to me when I watched Creed 2. <laughs> yeah, I remember having, watching um, Annabelle or Annabelle Creation, one of the two. They're, they're all the same to me. <laughs> and yeah, there were some teenagers making a ton of noise, um, being a nuisance, and one of my friends was like, right, I've, I'm ha- I've had it. I don't snitch, but these people, they're, nah, I'm done it. And they left, got an usher, and the usher kicked these teenagers out. So, uh, quite uh, eventful. I was once in the lobby of View in Manchester, and it was um, on, it's not, it was the on the second floor where all the um, things are, where you can like buy all the food and stuff. And I hadn't yeah. been, I hadn't been, to, my film hadn't started yet, so I was just waiting for my film to start and was going to go upstairs and find the, the cinema. And I just saw a man like walk out of, a, of one of the um, one of the screenings on the screens on that floor, like really red in the face, and he just went absolutely nuts at one of the ushers. Like I've never seen anyone so like he was just like properly full of rage about basically some teenagers at the back of the, his screening like making noise and like it was bothering his kid or something but he was like properly go he was like actually incandescent like full on like screaming that's really really unrelated that's a really that's really tangential <laughs> yeah i don't know who you're talking about i've never been to manchester <laughs> I, I don't know where the second floor of you even is um so to take it slightly back towards you, Jake, and towards the films you have on this list, another one that we watched recently that I liked a lot more, actually, than I sort of enjoyed, and I paid a lot more attention to, I should say, as well, was uh, Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, a very similar kind of vibe, I guess, in the sense that it is sort of uh, a person's awakening when someone comes to, like, uh, someone comes into their life and... Yeah, but um, I think personally I prefer Portrait of Lady on Fire because in Call Me By Your Name there is somewhat of a weird overtone 
based on the sort of casting choices, which I don't think do the film a lot of good from sort of a... If you were just to look at the film without knowing about the source material, then the sort of age difference between the actors makes it seem more inappropriate than perhaps it actually is. Do you remember what the exact ages are? Because I was going to try and estimate them, but if you actually remember, I was going to get you to... Uh... Yeah, so the, the book is... Uh, Elio is 17, and uh, the other guy, whose name I've completely forgotten, played by um, Arnie oh, Hammer, is uh, 25. And then in the in the adaptation, in the film adaptation, uh, uh, Timothy Chalamet was 19, and Arnie Hammer was like 31. But yeah, like, definitely but, problematic. But, but even though it's like 12 years, they, they it looks more than that, because obviously Arnie Hammer's a pretty big guy. I mean, he's bloody huge. Timothy Chalamet is doesn't looks probably about seventeen in it to be honest, and you do the sort of power dynamic that you see from that does make it seem a lot more inappropriate than perhaps it actually is. Yeah, so it's definitely a, a a more seems more problematic than it actually is. But I mean, it's it's difficult though because after watching it, you do sort of think like, I don't know what act they could have got. Cause I think Army both Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet are perfect in the film. And they, the way they act, like their acting is incredible. And I don't know whether you'd be able to, the chemistry between them together on screen is also good. And I don't know whether maybe they screen tested other people and just didn't work. And that was what they had to go with because they thought it would work best on film. And I just guess that it's sort of, I don't know. It's, realistically, the film's not an endorsement of anything. It's just a representation of something, if that makes sense. Yeah, when I when I talk about Call Me By Your Name, one of the things that stands out to me about it is, is as you say, it's not an endorsement, it's a representation. And what I feel about it is that although it's definitely a gay love story, the focus doesn't seem to be so much on the gay aspect of the story, but more on that feeling of, of your first love. How your first love is all in you know all encompassing it takes over your 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 brain and and mind and soul so i feel that it it's a love story that everyone can relate to within a gay love story yeah i think they sort of hit the down the head they're really cause with the book the um in like in the book it's never mentioned whether he's like gay or bisexual or anything it's just sort of this stuff just happens and I think that that's probably where the film goes well, because it's not necessarily his struggle with something. He sort of accepts it quite early on, but he doesn't feel like there's a need to give it a label. It's just sort of an experience of a summer. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, I think the film is, I think the, the sort of the overriding sense of the film is is very much like watching an experience. Because arguably not a lot really happens in the film. It's not, it's not, it's not particularly like... It, it, I mean, it does sort of have like a, a loose sort of beginning, middle, and end, but it feels you, they're not very noticeable. There's no sort of like, oh, this is where the resolution is. It's very much sort of like you just sort of watch. It's very, it very much feels like you're just watching an experience. And it, and it, I think it is quite well bookended either way. And I think actually one of the, I read quite an interesting article about it. It was actually written by like a load of social workers about the um, sort of uh, power dynamic of the relationship and whether or not it's problematic. And they said that their sort of main point was, and I'm sort of paraphrasing this a bit and I may get slightly wrong, but what they said was the bit that they took the most issue with was right at the end when he's talking to his dad about it 
and they said that what if they had been advising the film or whatever, what they would have done is make it more sort of sort of bring that element back into it again and sort of his dad be like, Oh, was it alright? Like, how do you feel about it now? And I mean, maybe that wouldn't have uh, led to such a um, sort of powerful ending. And I'm not saying they should, maybe I'm not, not arguing they should include that. I just thought it was quite an interesting thing to read. And especially coming from people who sort of have quite a good depth, deep knowledge of that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think to, we, if, if we turn to uh, the form to continue talking about different types of films, uh, we, we have a lot of things on here. And one of the things I remember from the recording of this episode that we never aired we talked about neo-westerns and how you find them quite interesting, Jake. Yeah, so I think the films I specifically highlighted here were Hell or High Water and No Country for Old Men. Um, they are sort of... I think I think feel like they're sort of different from most sort of modern blockbusters in the fact that they're sort of slow films. Like, obviously, watching a load of films recently... That you, there's a lot you do notice from watching older films and watching new films. The pacing is certainly a lot slower in films that are older. And I think that for certain things, that does actually work quite well. Like No Country for Old Men, for example, is sort of, well, it's it ostensibly, from a very surface level, it's just a story about someone who finds some money and then the police are sort of looking for it and a hitman's looking for it. But if you sort of look into the film more deeply, it's sort of the idea of like lawful evil neutral good or whatever that sort of what whether that is like a grid thing it's sort of a look at that in terms of like one character represents bad things one character represents good things and the other character represents chaos and i just think that it does sort of work as quite a slow film because you sort of grow into the film whereas a sort of a modern blockbuster probably would have made it into more like what we like car chases and like explosions and setting this a bit less cerebral. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And something I felt about um, No Country for Old Men was uh, it really translates the feeling the book gives you onto the screen really, really well. And there's something about the book where Cormac McCarthy's style of writing is quite... I want to say indifferent to what the reader cares about so he's telling the story how he wants it and sometimes it's incessant he he might not end a sentence for a couple pages and that feeling of is all the clock is always ticking but it's not rushing but the clock is always ticking and it's moving on bit by bit i feel is very present in the film version not sure if you'll agree (laughs) Uh, I haven't read the book, but I think from what you sort of explained there, it does make sense. I think as well, the thing about this sort of, uh, the thing I kind of, I I mean, I'm not as big into sort of near-westerns as Jake is, but I think I can definitely appreciate about them is that the kind of, the environment of neo-westerns, sort of the, the environment really lends itself to the plot. And a lot of sort of other films do in that sense that the fact that they are sort of in very and the way the thing that sort of demonstrates this really well is that the guy who um directed uh hell or high water also directed another film called wind river which came out a few years after Taylor Sheridan. yeah and it had um it was uh, jeremy renner and elizabeth olsen 
And what it is, is it is basically, it is effectively a neo-Western, but it isn't set in the sort of sort of the Wild West, it's sort of in inverted commas, like the desert. It's actually set in, um, I think it's Alaska. It's sort of set in sort of a snowy setting. And it's sort of, in some ways, it's kind of bizarre and uncanny. But in other ways, it's actually a really good deconstruction of the sort of, sort of Western and specifically neo-Western genre. Because when you apply exactly the same kind of sort of tropes to it, it shows how sort of a desolate landscape and sort of that sort of idea of emptiness and sort of um, sort of a large expanse sort of really acts as sort of a tertiary character in the film. And I think that's one of the things that makes Westerns so distinctive and also that you need, it is that idea of having the setting as part of, having the setting effectively as a character in the film, which is something that's obviously done quite well by Westerns. Yeah, I think I'd say sort of with sticking with the sort of Western theme, the sort of thing that unites those films is sort of a sense of, like, sort of isolation and being sort of left behind by time, which I think is sort of ironic considering the Western genre is now sort of has been left behind. It's not something that's particularly popular anymore in sort of contemporary filmmaking. And the sort of sense that these characters are still having to live in a t- live in sort of the situations they find themselves in, despite the fact the rest of the world's moved on. There's obviously uh, another uh, film would be uh, Hell or High Water, something you mentioned. It's sort of set in a very, uh, like, towns that are very desolate and aren't very uh or sort of appear to not be particularly socioeconomically like advanced and i think it's just sort of a very interesting study of how people sort of live in places that you don't usually see in american films like me and josh were talking the other day about how we're trying to name all the films we've watched that are either set in la or new york especially like every single american film you watch and i think that sort of seeing something in a place we, where someone's in America, you don't immediately think of like Wyoming or whatever, Wind River set. Yeah, and another film on this list which you talk about are anti war films. And we touched upon that earlier with films like Dead Presidents and The Five Bloods, which, although we haven't seen it, it seems to be anti war. You talk about Unbroken and Fury and Apocalypse Now. What is it about anti-war films that you quite enjoy? I think it's just the whole sort of dynamic of making a film that's able to show war while simultaneously showing the sort of horrors of it as well. Because watching a film that sort of essentially glorifies war is a very, I don't know, I guess a boring experience because it's not the truth. Because, I mean, if you watch any, like, high-budget war film where it's just the Americans turn up, they shoot everyone, it all ends up happily, and then they, they go home with a great time. There's, there's no message from that film. It's just explosions and shooting for explosion shooting's sake. Whereas with these films, it sort of focuses more on the characters and the sort of mental aspects. I mean, obviously, the films you've mentioned do have incredibly high-budget uh, set pieces where there are explosions and stuff, but it's not sort of the main attraction of the film. Like, because if you watch... On a platoon, for example, and think, oh, that looks really cool. You're an idiot and haven't been watching the film properly. I think what it does, what sort of and the sort of anti-war kind of genre is that it 
and I, I don't know, it, I don't think it's as much as a problem in the UK as it is in America, but there's a very, um, when, you're, when, you're, when you're a kid or whatever, there's, there's a very much a attitude towards sort of soldiers and war and guns and sort of, oh, that's really like, being a soldier is cool because you get to defend your country and you are sort of, you are sort of at this, you are, you are sort of, arguably, you are a protector of your country and therefore you obviously deserve respect and I, I don't mean to sort of denigrate anyone who does sort of serve in the armed forces and there are definitely times when you need that kind of when you need war but on the other hand it, it what they show is that they demonstrate that a lot of wars are sort of they're, they're morally wrong and that they, they shouldn't be there anyway and also sort of the idea that war is something to be glorified and proud of is is something that is not it is a fallacy. It, it, it is it, it is it plays into a lot of things, and I think one of the other things that Dead Presidents does really well in sort of that fallacy is it also demonstrates how um, specifically in America and to an extent no, I mean in this country as well, sort of um, people on lowest sort of socioeconomic backgrounds like the working class get drafted into wars to fight for things that are that are, that are sort of sold to them as oh this is defending freedom when actually it's nothing to do with freedom it's about oil or it's about sort of uh, removing a regime which sort of impacts on sort of economic status of a country and to, to even go beyond war films i think one of the things that go <clears throat> one of the films that really does it one of the best films sort of in that kind of genre is uh, alien is sort of james cameron's aliens Whereas if you're watching that, I mean, it's full of explosions. It looks pretty cool. But when you actually really sit down and think about it, it's actually quite a clever satire of the Vietnam War. Because they're effectively going to an alien's home planet for absolutely no reason other than to try and capture some of these aliens to try and turn them into weapons themselves. I realise that's absolutely nothing to do with the Vietnam War, clearly. But it's sort of that idea of you're basically sending people into... Sending people so basically for corporate interest, you're sending people into a place where they're going to get killed because you've sold them a dream of oh well if you are if you sort of join war it is a good thing and you're sort of defending your country when actually you're not doing any of that. What you're doing is you're putting people in horrific situations where horrific events happen for the sort of sake of profit and yeah sort of governmental sort of um, uh, victory. That was a bit ranty, wasn't it? Hey, that's what we do on here. <laughs> And I think we should switch over to stuff you, you don't like. You were saying you don't enjoy horror. And I vaguely remember we had a chat about this in the, again, the, the, the recording of this episode <laughs> that <laughs> is lost to time. But what is it about horror that you don't enjoy? I, everyone has their own grievances. Um, I think, obviously, I'm not an enormous fan of jump scares, which I'm sure is a thing that has been discussed a death on this podcast, so I won't go into that very much. But I think it's that I don't think I've really seen a horror film that has enough sort of narrative structure to make me enjoy it. Like, for example, Aliens is basically a sort of horror action film, which I did quite enjoy, but because it has a very good narrative in it, whereas watching something like, I don't know, uh, the film you mentioned, Annabelle, I, I haven't seen it, but I'm vaguely familiar with the plot of a film Sorry, we can say I, that I, film I is basically it. spooky doll comes to life. It's nothing special. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that was what I thought. But basically, there's, there's nothing you're going to learn from that film. It doesn't have a deeper message, I don't think. And I think I prefer watching... But my, basically, my um, uh, sort of... How I judge a film to be good is if I watch it one day and I think about it the next day, like if I think back and think and think about the film more, 
and that means that it was a good film. And I just don't see how a film like most sort of horror films I've heard of, I haven't ever thought, oh, that seems like something that I would enjoy and I just have limited amounts of time to watch things. So just obviously watch things that I think I'll enjoy. That's fair. I mean, that, that that's fair. Yeah, I don't really watch a lot of um, rom-coms, for example. That's a, a genre that I find hard to get into. There are some rom-coms that are brilliant, but there's a lot of them that are just formulaic and very samey. And I get that people can feel that about other genres, such as you with horror. I think one of the things that's really damaged horror in that respect, in terms of, especially someone of sort of our age, who, um, so obviously if you were someone who grew, if you were born in, say, the uh, 60s, you would have grown up watching groundbreaking horror, so you would have watched stuff like The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre at times when no one was doing anything like that. Whereas if you're, and you would have, so if you, yes, if you were born in the 60s or sort of late 50s, early 60s, you probably would have watched those films like between the ages of about 10 and about 30, I would imagine sort of around those times whereas for me if what i would have the films i would have watched between so sort of like say i don't watch nice horror when i was 10 but arguably 10 to 25 i mean in that time you've got what five five um what's it called you've got five um paranormal activities a load of sore a load of sore films a couple knockoffs of them it's like now there's nothing the, the the really interesting the reason why sort of i think that our generation in some ways is sort of turned off horror is because we have less sort of groundbreaking and there are groundbreaking films out there to do with horror and there are some fantastic ones but i think they get sort of swept under the rug in some way so they can make a uh, killer doll seven and stuff like oh it's like it's even like to the extent of um sort of um sort of not uh, sort of i know it's not terminology sort of the whole torture porn genre i imagine there probably are films of that genre like back in the 80s and 90s which were genuinely revolutionary whereas now you just have three human centipede films which exist purely because it's disgusting to do that to people yeah on on that on that specific point about sort of films like the human centipede which are obviously just made to be horrifying there's nothing well I've, I, again, go back to the jump scare thing. Like, if you're watching a film and someone jumps up and says "boo" and not expecting it, like, it, it is scary, but it's not like it's nothing particularly deep about it. Whereas a film that I have seen is uh, After Hours. So Martin Scorsese directed it. I think nineteen early nineties, and it's not a horror film, but it's just very deeply sort of troubling. If that makes sense, like nothing particularly scary happens in it, but it's just a sort of a, it's basically sort of without wanting to spoil it too much, it's sort of the idea of being trapped in a nightmare and sort of this person happens to end, sort of starts to get into increasingly farcical situations. But there's always a very sort of weird undertone of sort of horror in it. Like when me and Josh first watched it, we got half an hour in and like we put a different film on because I was like, I think it's going to go like, I thought it was going to get like really horrific. And then eventually went back to it and watched it to the end. Nothing really horrific happens, but there is just such a powerful sense of dread that <laughs> I, I've just honestly never experienced anything like it. I need to watch that film. I saw the um, the, well, the 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 tagline is what is it? Um, nothing good ever happens after midnight or something like that. It's something along those lines, I think. Yeah, and the yeah the idea of, of a film that really plays with a that paranoia i i do find enticing it's been on my watch list for a while and, and on my you know fingertips for the last few weeks it's been on my mind 
So I'll have to check that out. Another film that does it really well is, I think, uh, The Lighthouse does because the lighthouse is the lighthouse is really bizarre because i've never been able to decide what genre i'd put the lighthouse the lighthouse as because it says on its sort of the wikipedia it says it's sort of a psychological horror film but then i don't know it's it's because it's there's nothing like i kind of look at it kind of more like a period drama because there's nothing there's nothing innately horrifying about it other than the fact it's just extremely sort of grim and dark and sort of like it has a very unsettling atmosphere, but it's not necessarily a sort of a horror film. There's a few kind of disturbing bits of imagery, but there's nothing sort of like I don't. I wouldn't say it's on sort of the same level as sort of um, so other sort of. I wouldn't say it's on the same level as like The Witch or something. Yeah, it's definitely a, an unsettling feeling in in the lighthouse. It does. I mean, I, I recommend it as a cabin fever film. It that's the main one of the main sources of their fear and 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 um paranoia is the cabin fever so i i if that's the vibe of after hours i am very much looking forward to watching it yeah i'd say it definitely has that sort of the air of because it is the it's the sort of very brilliant sort of it's a very 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 difficult thing to tap into but it once you if you do it well it is it makes for a fantastic film where what you're watching is you're not watching anything remotely disturbing, but it is it is disturbing. It's very similar to a lot of quite a lot of stuff David Lynch does. I would describe After Hours as very Lynchian in that sense, mm-hmm. because it just has that sort of sense of sort of the uncanny and the sort of just like this is just like it just it's got just a very sort of the kind of grim atmosphere where nothing bad happens, but you're always constantly on the lookout that something could or might, and it, it just it. It really does sort of it's kind of like i'd say it's kind of like primal is that sort of very much uncanny valley kind of like primal unsettling sense which kind of manifests as sort of like you don't want to stop watching but it just leaves you feeling a bit kind of, kind of gives you like the shivers i guess is the best way i can describe it i think it's more the fact it's very sort of surreal but in a sort of realistic way which obviously is an oxymoron but you have the feeling that anything could happen. I think that's where the fear comes from. Like you literally don't know what could come next because it could be something that isn't within the bounds of reality. I think that's the sort of unknown of that is what gives it the sort of tension, which sort of makes it an incredibly good film. And I know we're running a bit long now. So before we wrap up, I think that talking about what you guys have watched recently what else have you guys been watching in lockdown because you mentioned you watched 81 films <laughs> give us some highs and lows let, let, let the people know what's been the highlight or the the embarrassing side of what you've been watching during lockdown so when we were when jake was mentioning the um sort of bad run of films i think that we did very we did two very specific films one after the other on consecutive evenings and one of them was alien cube and the other one was predator 2 and neither of them are very good <laughs> as much as i do love david finch's work um alien cube is just genuinely not particularly good it it's nothing i mean it's, it's some of it's, some of the sequences are fairly alright but it's just quite long and not particularly interesting and predator 2 is just I, I'm usually quite a big fan of sort of trying to merge genres into something that's good, but Predator 2 does it extremely badly and tries to combine Predator with a police procedural to extraordinarily bad effect. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thinking of Alien, but just to bring it up, um, 
Well, what was that alien? Was it Alien Three, the Lost script that that popped up a couple months ago? Perhaps because there was a lot of um, there were a lot of different things they were gonna. I watched a, quite a good YouTube video about all the potential um iterations of the film before they decided on the one they actually recorded, and every single one of them sounds infinitely better than the thing they ended up making because it's just generally not a good film. Well, I remember now, the original Alien 3, I've just found an article and it's jogged my memory, it was written by William Gibson, fantastic science fiction author who pioneered cyberpunk. And the script resurfaced last year, last year, a year before that. Mm. But last year it came out, it was released as an audio drama, an audio book um, that's exclusive to Audible. We are not sponsored by Audible.com. Um... So if you're interested in Alien 3, uh, the, the original, the, the Lost Alien 3, it's there. It's uh, it's out there. What are your uh, lowlights, Jake? Lowlights or highlights? Uh, we'll do lowlights quickly first, then we'll go on to highlights. Uh, lowlights, a good question. Um, we watched Get Carter, which is obviously a very sort of seminal British action film that definitely suffers from the problem of there are so many characters in it, I literally couldn't keep track of it. Like, that was Get... difficult to follow. Get Carter is, um, if I'm not mistaken, that's Michael Caine, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I was going to say, also watch Serpco, which has a very similar problem. I think the problem with Get Carter is that it's just a film that is completely packed full of northern English men who look vaguely similar and their names aren't said enough for you actually to be able to remember them. So unless you're paying 100% attention and actually trying to trying mentally to keep track of them, it becomes actually genuinely quite hard to follow. And as you said, yes, Serpico. So I, actually, I, I liked Serpico a lot more than Jake did. And I think it was quite an interesting film, but it does, it is very, very bloated and includes far more sort of tertiary characters than a film could ever possibly need. Well, lots of gangster type men with names you can't remember. Isn't that just a Guy Ritchie film? <laughs> I, I'm sure I if, if you if you see Guy Ritchie, you'll be fine with that. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, we, did, we actually watched The, the Gentleman as well, which is not good. I enjoyed it, but definitely not his best work. Yes, certainly not. I think the other thing that Guy Ritchie does well, though, that does help set them apart, is they also do people. The people in the films also have quite weird names, like nicknames and stuff, which helps you kind of remember them because you think, oh, that's a bit of a weird name. Whereas if everyone in the films called like John, Dave, Pete, it does become a bit like who the who is who at this point. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair. Um analysis of his films <laughs> and also so and also to be fair as well like the characterization like a lot of the, the characters are sort of because i think one of the things guy Ritchie does really well is a lot of the characters are kind of caricatures so it makes them a lot more memorable whereas this film they are just sort of sort of northern geezers and at that point it they don't have any kind of dis, like none of the like the whole point of get carter effectively is that they are trying to get carter they just want to kill this guy and then they all sort of have very similar motivations, so it's very hard to tell them apart because it's just a load of sort of middle-aged northern men trying to kill Michael Caine. And at that point, who is who is completely irrelevant because they're all trying to do exactly the same thing. Whereas Guy Ritchie, at least in like a Guy Ritchie film, they all have their own sort of separate characterizations and things. But in terms of your sort of highlights, Jake, what what, what would you say for those just finally? Um, probably the other day I watched uh, God's Own Country, which is sort of a it's sort of similar to what I 
it's a like sort of gay love story film, but it's set in like uh, Yorkshire in England. It sort of deals quite well with sort of the social isolation associated with living in a very rural area, which is obviously quite an interesting thing to explore. And also I watched um, Okja, which is the uh, Bong Joon-ho uh, Netflix film, which is a very different vibe, but is also very... I don't know, I gave it five stars on Letterboxd, and it was just... I wasn't expecting it to be good, and I just really loved it, because it's a very sort of excellent takedown and sort of capitalism that Bong Joon-ho's films generally tend to be. Good stuff, and I think that's a good point to wrap it up. There's a ton of films mentioned and and talked about, which we one day do need to go back on our letterbox, go back the podcast, (laughs) sorry, and make a letterbox list, which is every single film we've talked about or mentioned. That would take us ages, but... Thousands of them. Yeah, just thousands of just rubbish. (laughs) But... That said, I think it's time to say thank you, Jake, for joining us. Thank you. Does this count as my hat trick of being on? Because I'm also on the lost episode. (laughs) Technically, yes. You are the Alien 3 of our podcast. (laughs) I was too far. I'd say that. I'd say that. I was going to say, like, we could. At one point, we'll release the last podcast, but it generally isn't worth releasing because it just isn't good. Like, there's nothing anyone would like. This is a far better. This is far, this is basically just an improvement on that one. So I think listening to the other one would just be like a bad sequel, like yeah, Alien Cube. So there you go. So it so also touches on some of the stuff we've spoken about here. So it'd be like very weird to see what I said about stuff a month ago and how <laughs> I explained it differently this time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, is there anything you'd like to plug quickly before we go, Jake? Uh, no, I just want to follow me on Twitter at JakeSandyFC. Occasionally tweet about films, more often tweet about music and sport. Might be fun. Who knows? You can find me on Twitter at Josh Sandy and on Letterboxd and Instagram at Josh W Sandy. And all my social media is at Tobias Soar, so hop on over. I'll be happy to chat or fight you to the death about whichever film we disagree on. Thank you very much for listening, and we will be back with regularly scheduled programming every Tuesday from here on out, talking to friends about film. Goodbye.